Is it gone red? Yeah. Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining me for this week's talk, Swanson and the Aberdeen Body Snatchers. For those tuning in for the first time and don't know me, my name is Adam Wood, and I'm the author of Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective. This is the third in a series of live talks I'm giving on the cases of Chief Inspector Donald Swanson. The book is available on Amazon in all formats, and the Kindle version is currently just 4 99 Last week I spoke about the railway murder of Percy Lefroy Mapleton, and you can catch up with the video on this page. And tonight I'll talk about the next case in Swanson's book, Swanson and the Aberdeen Body Snatchers. Two days after the body of Percy Lefroy Mapleton was buried in an unmarked grave in the grounds of Lewis Jail, another very different final resting place some 600 miles north was about to reveal a gruesome secret. On the 1st of December 1881, a labourer working on the restoration of the mansion house owned by the Earl of Crawford at Dunecht, near Aberdeen, noticed that turf had been disturbed at the entrance to the family tomb. He alerted the overseer of the works, who in turn told the Earl's commissioner the police were summoned from Aberdeen. The alterations to Dunecht House, shown here, which had been going on for some years, included the building of a chapel under which was a mausoleum where the body of Alexander Lindsay, the 25th Earl of Crawford, had been entombed. The late Earl had been notable in his his interest in astronomy and theology, and his vast library at the family seat at Hague Hall near Wigan was a testimony to his endeavours in learning. He was a great genealogist and had published an exhaustive history of his family over three volumes in 1849. He's shown here seated with his son and heir, James, James Lindsay. A great traveller, in 1880 the Earl had visited Egypt, despite being in, in, in ill health, and then went on to Italy, where he died at Florence on the 13th of December. His body was embalmed by a Florence chemist and placed within three coffins, the inner made of Italian wood, the middle of lead and the outer one of polished oak elaborately carved and mounted with silver fittings. Once sealed, the three coffins were placed in an enormous walnut shell which bore a carved cross. The resulting half-tongue coffin was transported across the Alps and then by steamer to London, where a train took it to Aberdeen, only for the hearse to be stranded by the wayside for several days due to a particularly violent snowstorm, before it could complete the final leg of its journey to Dunnecht House. A week after their return, on the 29th of December, the remains of a late Earl were finally placed in the newly built tomb beneath the white marble chapel, the first tenant of the newly built mausoleum built to replace that at Hague Hall. The steps leading down to the vault were covered by four enormous slabs of caithness stone, with the interstices of these filled with lime. Six months later, the stones were covered by a vast quantity of soil, into which grass and shrubs were sown, Iron railings were then erected in a semicircle to enclose the area. Now, almost a year after his entombment, it was discovered that the intended final resting place for the Earl had been disturbed. On entering the vault, Aberdeen police officers Cran and Rob saw that the flagstone directly over the steps, some six feet by four feet and weighing 1500 weight, had been lifted eight inches on one side and propped up by a piece of wood. Descending the steps, they discovered two planks and three iron bars lying on the stairs, 
The floor of the vault was strewn with fervour planks and scented sawdust. In the middle of the floor, the three coffins lay open side by side. The body of the 25th Earl of Crawford was missing. For almost half a century, the feared resurrection men had been kept at bay. Commonplace in the 18th and early 19th centuries, these men were employed by anatomists to secure bodies for dissection. The Murder Act of 1752 gave judges the power to make the bodies of executed criminals currently being put on public display instead available for dissection for medical purposes in hope that the thought of being cut open after death would act as a deterrent to wrongdoers. With the enormous increase in medical schools and hospitals at the turn of the 19th century, however, corpses sourced in this way failed to meet demand. This created a market for the resurrection men an undeserved semi-respectable moniker given to grave robbers. Doctors and anatomists would pay for corpses to be supplied, usually with no questions asked, and resurrectionists were prepared to risk attack from night watchmen, who were often employed at graveyards. Families began to bury their dead in secure coffins and place heavy slabs over the graves to deter body snatchers. In 1828, probably the most infamous body snatchers of all came to notoriety. After successfully selling the corpse of an army pensioner who had died of natural causes, William Burke and William Hare decided to create their own supply by murdering 16 people over the course of 10 months in Edinburgh and selling the corpses to eminent anatomist Dr Robert Knox. Although both were eventually caught and Burke executed, with Hare turning King's evidence, their grim business had influenced a gang known as the London Burkers to copy their methods. The gang, led by John Bishop, were based in the East End of London. On the 5th of November 1831, Bishop and another gang member attempted to sell a suspiciously fresh body to Guy's Hospital, but they were turned away. They next took it to King's College Anatomy, uh, School of Anatomy on the Strand, where they accepted nine guineas in return for the corpse, that of a boy around 14 years of age. An anatomist at the school named Richard Partridge examined the body and believe it to have not been buried, called the police. The London burkers were arrested and remanded, and three days later a coroner's court returned a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown. On the 19th of November, Superintendent John Joseph Thomas searched the burkers' lodgings and discovered several items of clothing in a well in the garden. The police suspected the young, bo the young body to be that of Carlo Ferrari, an immigrant from Italy, who scraped a living by exhibiting caged mice near Smith Smithfield Market. And on the 1st of December, Bishop appeared at the Old Bailey with gang members Thomas Williams and James May, charged with his murder. The following day, the three burkers were found guilty and sentenced to death. In their confessions, Bishop and Williams revealed that the boy was not the missing Italian, but a youth from Lincolnshire whom they had met at the Bell Public House in Smithfield. They had lured him to their lodgings where he was drugged with laudanum and thrown headfirst into the well with a cord tied around his ankles. Bishop and Williams went to a local tavern, returning some time later to pull the body from the well before undressing it and placing it in a bag. While awaiting execution, Bishop claimed to have stolen between 500 and 1,000 bodies over a 12-year period, selling them to anatomists from respected institutions, including St Thomas's Hospital and St Bart's. Bishop and Williams were hanged at Newgate on the 5th of December, 
Warren Maig was spared the death sentence as it was accepted that he was not involved in the murder of the boy. Ironically, their bodies were then sent for dissection. Bishop to the King's College School of Anatomy, where he had sold the body of his victim, and Williams to the Theatre of Anatomy in Windmill Street. Aberdeen also had its share of unsavoury activity at this time, with Dr Andrew Moore lecturing on human anatomy using suspiciously fresh bodies at his anatomy rooms, which in 1831 were burned to the ground by a large crowd of people offended by his alleged practices. Following the Edinburgh murders by Burke and Hare, a select committee issued a report underlining the importance of anatomical science and recommended that the corpses of those who had died in the workhouse be used for dissection. After the trial of the London Burkers, the author of that report, Henry Warburton, submitted a bill which led to the drawing up of the Anatomy Act 1832, which came into effect in August of that year. The Act ruled that licensed anatomists could use the bodies of paupers for research purposes, and given the vast numbers of workhouse inmates, this put an end to the resurrection men. And since the passing of the Act, no further cases of body snatching had been reported in Britain, and the dead could finally rest in peace until now. The fifth of the Earl of Crawford's remains was soon christened the Dunnett Outrage. The 26th Earl, his, his son James Lindley, shown here, was informed and travelled to Dunnett immediately. His mother, the Dowager Countess, had been travelling in Italy for some months and would not learn of the desecration of her husband's tomb for another two days. Officers from the Aberdeen Constabulary conducted a search of the 53,000 acre estate to no avail, and very soon the enormity of the task was realised. Not only was a vast part of the estate covered in dense woodland, but the poor weather threatened to hamper investigations. Some focus was required and a cool head providing direction. An appeal for assistance was issued and four days after the discovery, the afternoon train brought two men from London. One was Mr. James Allsop of the Earl of Crawford's London solicitors. The other, shown here, was Inspector Donald Swanson of the CID. Their, their arrival drew a large crowd, with the Scotland Yard man in particular drawing attention, as one reporter wrote. Inspector Swanson was looked upon with considerable interest, if not with some awe, as the capture of Lefroy, and the interest was probably heightened by the circumstances that he is a native of the North and has relatives in Aberdeen. The fact that his brother John lived in Aberdeen at this time suggests that Swanson had perhaps brought his wife Julia and their two young sons with him. Swanson's remit was to act as advisor to the local officers, not supersede them, but his experience and detective insight would be of great value. Although John Swanson, shown here, had retired two years earlier as superintendent of the Aberdeen Constabulary, Donald would no doubt have discussed the case with him and gained knowledge not only of the local area, but also its criminal element. By this time, John had been a widower for seven years following the death of his wife Elizabeth during childbirth. And in 1881, he was living with his five youngest children at Thistle Place. If Julia did travel north, she remained with her brother-in-law as her husband traveled the 30 miles to Dunnacht House. The tomb had been left as discovered until Swanson arrived to inspect it, and the detective began his investigation immediately. The main house itself was inspected in minute detail. Tenant cottages, farmhouses and barns on the estate were also searched. The Dunnacht woods were scoured, 
and old stone walls which might hide a corpse in a recess were pulled down. Pits were turned over and fields probed with iron pikes in hope of finding an interred box. A pond situated 500 yards from the house and partly hidden by overhanging beech trees was drained. Not a single clue as to the location of the body was discovered. After a week, the local police force was stood down, leaving Swanson as the only detective at Dunnecht. Working with the new Erwin solicitor, Swanson turned his attention to the numerous letters which had been received, mainly from anonymous authors. Allsop travelled to Florence to investigate a letter sent from a writer there who claimed to know the identity of those behind the theft. Swanson travelled to Aberdeen and Glasgow to conduct inquiries and it was decided to give no information to the press. Naturally, as a result, wild rumours began to appear in the newspapers, some in the form of editorial comment and others from printed letters from the public, such as the following from a Mr Hugh Cochrane, published in the Daily News. When returning from the city on the top of an omnibus which halted at Regent Circus, a man passed down Oxford Street towards the city carrying a parcel which looked like an Egyptian mummy. I was so struck with the appearance that I remarked to a fellow passenger is that not for all the world like a body that man is carrying? And he remarked, it does look like one. If you think fit to publish this, perhaps my fellow passenger would communicate with me. Then we could lay the description before the authorities. And if they thought it of any importance, they could perhaps trace this parcel further. It may not be the late Earl of Crawford's body, but if it is not his, I feel pretty certain it's the body of someone else in a state much lighter than during life. Two weeks into the investigation, the celebrated sleuth hound Morgan was called to Dunnecht. A bloodhound in Retriever Cross, it was Morgan who had discovered the arms and partially burned skull of a young girl stuffed up the chimney of a house in Blackburn. The remains were those of Emily Holland, whose limbless torso had been discovered three weeks earlier in a nearby field. The house belonged to Barbara William Fish, who was arrested and confessed to the murder. Morgan was so popular with the public after his success that he was exhibited on numerous occasions at Manchester and some 100,000 portraits of him were sold at sixpence each. This is, this is one of the cards. It was reported that he could smell a rabbit buried three feet underground and would fetch his master's hat, handkerchief or books or boots when asked to do so, often from a considerable distance away. Despite Morgan's spending several weeks, uh, two weeks at Dunnecht and being allowed into the tomb to smell the coffins and sawdust, the severe frost prevented him from picking up any scent around the grounds and after several abortive attempts, he was returned to his home at Preston. The bad weather which hampered Morgan's efforts also interfered with the intentions of a group of spiritualists from London who arrived at Dunnecht House during a fierce snowstorm and proceeded to enter a different sort of cloud. In a trance, the four clairvoyants claimed to see the Earl's body being carried from the tomb by three men and taken to a house on the estate, later buried in a field nearby. Perhaps needless to say, searches based on this supernatural insight proved fruitless. An advertisement placed in local newspapers appealing for information relating to any strange occurrences around Dunnecht jogged the memories of workmen on the estate, who recalled that a sweet aroma had been noticed issuing from the vault some seven months earlier. The smell, drifting up through the ventilator, 
had also been detected by the housekeeper at Dunnet. It had been put down to materials used on numerous reefs left upon the coffin and ignored. Cracks discovered between the flagstones were put down to frost and were refilled with lime and then cemented. A few days later the stones which covered the soil were covered with soil and the enclosure erected and the sweet aroma which had actually radiated from the spilt sawdust in the Earl's upturned coffin was forgotten about. Worse was to follow when it was revealed that the Earl's agent in Scotland, a solicitor named William Yates, had received a strange letter months before the discovery in which the writer claimed to know something of the body's disappearance. This is a copy of the letter held in the Swanson family archives. It says, Sir, the remains of the late Earl of Crawford are not beneath the chapel at Dunnet as you believe, but were removed hence last spring. And the smell of decayed flowers ascending from the vault since that time will, on investigation, be found to proceed from another cause than flowers, nay Bob. Yates contacted the, the builder who'd constructed the vault, who assured him that it had not been tampered with and the letter was dismissed as a hoax. Now, with the Earl's body still missing, the seriousness of the letter became apparent and an advertisement was placed in the Aberdeen newspapers asking Nabob to make contact. A further notice was placed on the 13th of December, asking a offering a £50 reward to the writer of the letter on condition that he disclose his identity. In the meantime, Inspector Swanson was satisfied he could do no more at Dunnet. On the 16th of December he left for London, where he would continue to monitor events and liaise with the Earl. On the 23rd of December, the mysterious Nabob finally got in touch with solicitor James Allsop, but is in no mood to reveal his identity. He wrote, Sir, the late Earl of Crawford, the body is still in Aberdeenshire, and I can put you in possession of the same as soon as you will bring in one more of the desperados who stole it to justice, so that I may, so that I may know with whom I have to deal. I have no wish to be assassinated by resurrectionists, nor suspected by the police for being an accomplice in such dastardly work which I most assuredly would be unless the guilty party had brought to justice. Had Mr Yates acted on the hint I gave him last September, he might have found the remains as though by accident and hunted up the robbers at leisure, but that chance is lost. So I hope you will find your men and make it safe and prudent for me to find what you want. P.S. Should they find that a outsider knows their secret, it may be removed to another place. Nabob. Slowly, arrests were made. The offer of a £600 reward from the Earl finally brought forth information, and Thomas Kirkwood, a joiner who had been employed for several years at Dunnecht House, was arrested along with John Philip, a shoemaker. The Earl of Crawford was summoned by telegram, with Inspector Swanson contacted at Scotland Yard and asked to travel north immediately. After examination, both men were released and John Philip was afterwards approached by a local rat catcher named Charles Souter, who rather strangely asked whether the shoemaker had mentioned his name while being questioned. Five months later, a breakthrough finally came. A gamekeeper named George McRae came forward to say that Charles Souter had twice told him he knew where the Earl of Crawford's body was hidden. Thinking nothing of it, McRae went about his business but on the 14th of July was asked by the rat catcher to inform a Mr Cassells, who was acting on behalf of the Crawford family, that Sutar could tell him where the body was. 
McCry could not find Mr Cassells and after being asked by Sutil on three consecutive days decided to go to the police. On the 17th of July 1882 the 42-year-old rat catcher was apprehended. <coughs> Sutil had been born in 1814 Brecon, 40 miles from Aberdeen and on one, at one point had been married to Anne but his continued brushes with the law seemed to have caused friction in the marriage. He was first arrested in 1861, aged just 20, for poaching on the Lundy estate at Brecken, and was ordered to pay a fine of £4 or face imprisonment for six weeks. Two years later, he was arrested for pursuing game on land belonging to the Earl of Dalhousie, this time receiving a £5 fine. In September 1878, he was one of four men returning from a night's poaching at Stonehaven near Aberdeen, with several bags containing game, when they were confronted by police sergeant John Gartley and John Wah, the gamekeeper. A scuffle ensued and the gang attacked Gartley and Wah, severely beating them and leaving, bad, leaving them both badly cut, lying unconscious on the road. Having been in hiding for two months, Sutar was finally captured on the 5th of November and was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. He had been employed at Dunnock House as a rat catcher on and off for a number of years but finally been let go as a result of his continued poaching on the estate. Now, before Sheriff Comrie Thompson, he admitted writing the two Nabob letters. When asked how he knew the whereabouts of the Earl's body, he claimed to have been out poaching in the Dunnett Woods when he heard a stick break began to run, fearing it was a gamekeeper's. He had got 20 yards when he found himself surrounded by a gang of four or five men, who threatened to shoot him, but eventually let him go. Sutar claimed to have continued poaching for another couple of hours before finally returning to the spot where he'd been ambushed. There he discovered a pile of rubbish in which was, the was a blanket containing the body of a dead man, covered in a liquid which gave off a sweet smell. Sutar then claimed to have been at the Balkari's arms, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, where he'd, been, he'd had a conversation with a, plaster, a plasterer named Cal, who had at one time been employed at Dunnett House. Cow, he, he said, had mentioned that the vault had been closed up because a sweet smell was issuing from it, similar to decaying flowers or benzoline, a petroleum spirit. Sutar said it was at this point he realised it, it was probably the smell which had been on the body and transferred to his hands. He was remanded in custody, custody while his story was checked and a renewed search in it, the part of the woods described by the rat catcher began. Sutar declined to take the police to the spot himself, claiming it was unsafe for him to do so, while the men he had seen were still at large. On 18th of July, after eight months beating by a party of around 20 men, a keeper's iron stick rebounded when poked into an earth near a ditch just 500 yards from the house. A spade was obtained and the earth dug up. At the bottom of the old ditch, a foot below the surface, lay the body of the 25th Earl. It was wrapped in a blanket and was undamaged. The original balming had left his face quite recognisable. The remains were taken back to the house with the solemnity of the original entombment and left to rest in the chapel. When told of the discovery, Sutar remarked, I'm very glad to hear it. They did not get it from me at all events. He was taken to the now empty grave and asked whether it was a spot he'd seen the dead man. And he said he could not recognise it as such. He was taken to view the corpse and commented that the face bore some resemblance 
to that of the body he'd seen in the wood. A week after their discovery, the remains of the late Earl left Dunnecht in great secrecy at five o'clock in the morning of Tuesday the 26th of July. The body was taken to Aberdeen Station and from there conveyed to Wigan via the express goods train. The body had been enclosed in three new coffins supplied by Mrs. Allen of Aberdeen, with a silver plate affixed to the outer coffin inscribed with the same simple wording as the original. The remains were interred the following day at the family's mausoleum at Hague Hall, Wigan. In the meantime, Sutar's background was being looked into. James Collier, a former worker at Dunecht, said he knew Sutar by sight. On 27th of May 1881, two days before the sweet aroma had been noticed at the Earl's tomb, Collier had been in a coach travelling from Aberdeen towards Ect, two miles from Dunecht House. Also on the coach was Sutar, who had just been released from prison after serving his 18-month sentence for assaulting Sergeant Gartley. James Cow, the plasterer who Sutar told, uh, claimed to have told him about the closing of the Earl's vault and the sweet smell was traced, and said that while he had known the rat catcher for three or four years, he had never had a conversation with him about the missing body. Charles Sutar was taken to Edinburgh's High Court of Judiciary on the 23rd of October 1882 and indicted, <coughs> excuse me, accused of violating the sepulchres of the dead. After hearing all the evidence in a single day, the following morning Lord Craighill began his summing up. He agreed with the belief that more than one person must have been involved in the robbery, but in the eyes of the law, the guilt of the prisoner was the same as if he'd acted alone. His motive was clearly to obtain a reward, and if Sutar was scared for his safety, why did he send the two Nabob letters not to the police, but to the solicitors who were offering the reward? The prisoner, it was claimed, had returned to the vault and displaced the turf, hoping that theft would be discovered. Once the crime had been discovered, and the search being unsuccessful, a reward was finally offered. Realising it would not be paid to anyone involved in the offence, Sutar sent the second Nabob letter in an attempt to provide the necessary information without implicating himself. The jury required, retired for just 35 minutes before reaching a guilty verdict and Sutar was sentenced to five years imprisonment. Over the next five few months, letters from the solicitors representing the free claimants of the £600 reward on offer were received. James Collier and John Philip claimed on the grounds that they had told the police early in the investigations that Sutar was a man who should be looked at. George McRae, whose application is shown here, stated it was his evidence which resulted in Sutar's arrest and at an inquiry on the 23rd of June 1883, Sheriff Guffrey Smith ruled in favour of McRae. But that was not the end of the matter. James Allsop, represented the 26th Earl, had already written to say they would not be making any payment, stating that Sutar could not have acted alone and their reward was offered for the conviction of all the perpetrators of the theft. The Home Office decided to pay half of their £100 reward, withholding the second £50, until such a time that Sutar's supposed accomplices were brought to justice. Reluctantly, Allsop followed suit. In February 1886, McRae instructed Aberdeen solicitor Alexander Duffus to pursue the second half of the reward. Oh, 
Excuse me. The Home Office quickly paid their fifth, second £50. Also, once again dragged their heels. It took the threat of legal action to extract the money, and McCry received this second £300 in July, June 1886. Despite his windfall worth £40,000 today, George McCry would continue in his modest profession as gamekeeper until dying suddenly two years later at his home in Broomhill Place, Aberdeen, on the morning of the 15th of August, 1888. By this time, Charles Soutar had been released from prison. He had served four of his five-year sentence and returned to Aberdeen, where he was visited at his Commerce Street home by a journalist from the Aberdeen Journal. The reporter described him as a middle-sized, stoutish man with a roundish face, shaven all but a heavy moustache and imperial, looking more like a well-to-do skipper than a convict capable of serious crime. Throughout the interview, Sutar continued to protest his innocence. He'd unsuccessfully petitioned Home Secretary William Harcourt for a pardon, and continued to claim that it was his reputation as a poacher which had made it easy for him to be made a scapegoat. He told the reporter that during his service, served first at Pentonville and then Dartmoor, he got on well with everyone despite the nature of his alleged crime until he became ill, when the doctors accused him of faking his symptoms and refused to treat him. The rap capture had returned to his own old profession, offering his services as a practical verminist, with an advertisement informing potential customers that he went about his business without causing smell or inconvenience. His work did not always go according to plan. In August the following year, Sutar had been employed by Hugh Rose Innes to rid his place of business of a large number of rats, and he duly arrived on a Friday and laid poison on consecutive days. Believing all the rats to be dead on the Monday, he left for home. But the following morning, Mr Rose Innes found footprints left by rats all over the house, and that night heard the rodents in the walls. A week after Sutar's visit, Mr. Rosinis deposited several pheasants from a shoot in a lot room, only to find nothing but feathers in the morning. He refused to pay the verminist, result resulting in Sutar taking him to Aberdeen Small Debt Court, seeking payment for his fee and railway fare. Sheriff Brown, hearing the case, decided that Sutar had not fulfilled the agreed contract of completely clearing the place of rats and ruled in favour of Mr. Rosinis. Despite this setback, Sutar continued to advertise his services in local newspapers. This last, new, this last notice appearing on the 13th of December 1913, just three weeks before he died, on the 5th of January 1914, at the age of 73. As for the 25th Earl, he found everlasting peace at Hague Hall. The spot where the body was discovered in the Dunnet Woods was marked with a memorial cross some 10 feet high which carries the following inscription amongst others. In memoriam, under this spot, the body of Alexander, Earl of Crawford, sacrilegiously stolen from the vault under the Dunnet Chapel, lay hidden for 14 months. To conclude, despite the successful conviction of Charles Soutar, the Dunnet outrage still to this day has many unanswered questions. Eve, even the judge at the trial admitted that Sutar must have had an accomplice. And if so, he took the secret of their identity to his grave. But why was there no further investigation into the others involved? 
could Sutar have been telling the truth? It would have taken more than one person to lift the heavy cavernist flagstone to gain access to the vault. And why were there three iron bars found in the tomb if he'd acted alone? Was Charles Sutar a body snatcher or a scapegoat? Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Bruce Colley, my right-hand man out in Aberdeen, for his help supplying some of the images used in the presentation. If you do have any uh, questions on the presentation, please type them in the comments below and I'll pick them up in a moment. Uh, I hope you'll join me for next week's talk, which will be Swanson and the Philosopher's Stone. Thank you.